0: Hello everyone and welcome to Dive Into Pride, a special series of interviews with LGBTQ plus leaders and allies whose work and efforts have had a significant impact for the LGBTQ plus community internationally. This episode features the incredible Gary Stewart. Gary is a strong advocate for the black and LGBTQ plus communities in the world of venture capital and business. A Yale-Trained lawyer, Gary graduated manga cum laude and has worked in some of the top law firms around the world before transitioning into a formidable entrepreneur. Founding internet based startup, Neroa.com, He then he then was a director at both Waira UK and Spain, and in his time there has helped over 185 startups raise over 262 million in funding, resulting in total estimated business values of over one billion dollars. So incredible. Gary now has co-founded The Nest, which he dubs as a masterclass for startups. Gary is a fantastic ambassador for the Black and LGBTQ plus business communities, and it's fantastic to have him here today. Welcome, Gary. Uh,
1: thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. It's
0: brilliant to have you here today. Um, I, think, I think it's clear from your from the introduction there that you're such an accomplished business person, You know who would have seen the business landscape change, both the business and economic landscape change, quite a lot over 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 the years um but also looking back over the years how has the business and venture world changed for members of the lgbtq plus community
1: yeah no i would say that honestly in spain where i lived for i guess 14 years um the gay community was like a lot more visible at least in business so kind of mm-hmm. when we started Maroa, um my mentor was a guy named jesus sentinar um, I met him at a gay networking event because I kind of belonged to this gay, you know, kind of networking group. And we would, like, be very supportive of one another. You know, he's one of, like, Spain's best-known or most accomplished entrepreneurs. Um, mm-hmm. Created something called idealista.com. Um, and so, yeah, he was there for me. And even when, you know, at the beginning when Telefonica called and said, hey, we want we want you to kind of join Waira or to help us launch Waira, I should say, um, I was like, no, I'm not really that interested. And I called up Jesus and I had just kind of like broken up with this guy who had kind of like ghosted me. So I was kind of <laughs> in the press mentality or mindset. Um, and then I was talking to him and then, you know, he was giving me some advice. And he was like, and I was like, yeah, And Telephonic called me. And he's like, yeah, you should really think about this because they're a really large company. So he was just kind of, you know, a great mentor um, and just helped me make a lot of like important personal and professional like decisions. Mm-hmm. When I came to the, the UK, um, I haven't seen that same sort of like vibrancy. I mean, I think that people tend to, I don't know if it's stiff up or lip or whatever, but um, I just don't see the same sort of, like, gay networking that I've seen in other places. You don't really hear that much about people's sexual orientation. It seems to be something that's, yeah, more discreet slash mm-hmm. in the closet. So, yeah, that's, that's what I would think about that. But, but yeah. at the same time, you look at the U.S. and you see people like Tim Cook, who's come out. I mean, he's a, yeah. the CEO of Apple. He's come out. He's proudly LGBT. Um, or partly gay and supportive of LGBT kind of rights. Um, and he's gone so far as to say that, you know, he thinks that being gay um, is a great thing for him, that it helped to kind of shape and define who he is. So it's not like something he apologizes for. But like, I don't necessarily think that I've seen that same spirit in in the UK.
0: So you mentioned about like the spirit. So in terms of like, what are some, of, in what way, like how, why do you think the culture is so different between the UK and the UK and Spain? I know you mentioned kind of like the, the British kind of stuff upper lip but what in in terms of the network how does it feel different the networking within the UK to somewhere like Spain which you said is a lot more open in terms of sexuality
1: yeah no I mean it was like when I first went to Spain because like when I moved over to Europe from Mm. the US at the beginning I spent a year in the UK and I remember kind of like you know even everything was still kind of like very much restricted, you know? Then I went to Spain and, you know, I went with some of my friends and they were like, oh my God, we landed in gay Salona. They didn't call it Barcelona. They called it gay Salona. It was like, <laughs> I love that. Sex and sexuality were kind of like everywhere. You know, you had like these really good looking boys that would be looking you up on the street. You know, you're on the beach. Everyone is like naked, you know, grandma, grandpa, the kids. It was just kind of like they don't have this inhibition when it comes to to sex and sexuality, which I found really Mm. strange because, you know, I was assuming it was gonna be this like really Catholic country and blah, 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 which is kind of like Italy tends to be a little bit more like that. But um, no, it was in your face everywhere, gay clubs everywhere, you know, mom and dad might be at the gay club with you. Um, You know, my first partner, his parents, like it wasn't, you know, a big deal. I mean, they were working class and you would be like, okay, maybe they're gonna be some, you know, kind of stereotypes or whatever. No, 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 it was kind of like completely accepted. They loved their son. which is not something I think you would see in a lot of other places. So yeah, and I kind mm. of just felt like in in Spain, there was just a kind of wholesale acceptance of it. In the UK, people obviously don't have a big deal. Um, you know, they don't make a big deal about it. You know, I think government here, even the conservative government has been very supportive of like uh, gay rights. It's just like something that people don't think they don't seem to create like an identity around it in the mm-hmm. same way that I think in other countries, people have said, okay, we're gay, but that means that we have like a gay identity. And that means that we're going to use that gay identity to lobby for our political and economic rights. Um, that's definitely the case in the U S definitely the case in some European countries, but so far I haven't seen that so much in the UK.
0: Yeah, no, I think mean, that's a really interesting kind of point, even like culturally hard stuff. And Cause I would even find that in Ireland, you would get a degree. You nearly have both. There's both groups. Is the group like you said about like the UK and then there's Grip, but like what you see in Spain, the kind of lobbying. So there is kind of fractions like of within of, of, of the community itself that are there lobbying. And then there's the other part that I kind of just like wouldn't even like publicly acknowledge it. So it's interesting to even see how that can influence and how that affects kind of how business is kind of done, which I think is really interesting. Um, you know, within this venture capital space specifically, like it's been reported that like less than 1% of funding goes to black founders. And, underrepresented founders in in total make up approximately around 10%, probably less, of venture capital funding. Gary, why do you think this is the case? And what do you think, from your experience, can be done to change this going forward?
1: Well, I think that kind of, you know, there are a number of different reasons. I mean, and again, it differs by country. I think in Hmm. the US, it was kind of like a bunch of probably like white middle class or upper middle class guys got together, in california and said hey let's support each other and support each other's businesses you know um and then eventually some of them became successful and then this whole ecosystem kind of grew up organically but it was all based on kind of these informal network of friends or networks of friends that kind of got together to invest and support each other's businesses Mm -hmm. um it wasn't kind of like thought out um so you know you did have these kind of closed networks Interestingly enough, though, it's not only venture capital. There was a report in the New York Times a few weeks back, and they were looking at kind of the philanthropic space, like foundations. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing. It was kind of like most of the foundations um, that say, you know, they want to support disadvantaged people or whatever. um, Most of the people getting funded were also white. And they also found that most of the people who worked in the foundations, um, I think it was something like 86 percent of them only had all white networks that's so insane yes yeah, so it is kind of you know so I, it was my way of saying that it's not just venture capital it's kind of yeah. the world generally the only thing is i think in venture capital it tends to be a little bit worse because they are really these just kind of closed networks and they don't really have to answer to anybody so everything happens mm-hmm. behind closed doors among friends um and they look within their own networks which are usually segregated you know, um, by race and probably also by gender and by sexual orientation um, to support one another. I think in Europe, it's the same exact thing, except that instead of growing organically, It's been more like government has had to intervene to try and create these, you know, startup. So I guess in in Ireland, is it like Enterprise Ireland and UK? You'll have something similar, and in Spain, you'll have something similar, and you'll have then kind of government saying, let's put some money because we really want to support these entrepreneurial ecosystems. But then they go to their friends. They go Mm. to. Uh, in the case of the uk someone who they went to school with at like oxford or cambridge um someone who you know is from their network um someone that you know worked at mckinsey or goldman sachs and so the fact that these networks are already kind of um restricted and segregated by race gender sexual orientation etc then kind of replicates itself in the european venture capital system as well because people mm-hmm. just go to their friends and as long as your friends only look like you then that means that the companies you invest in and the funds that you kind of create will look like you too
0: and like, what do you think needs to be kind of be done to kind of like change that? Do you is it a case that you need to see like, new funds being created that, like, would you see are happening with like a number like Diversity VC or like Backstage Capital, et cetera, That have the set of funds that just invest in minority founders that are from underrepresented groups? Is that what needs to be done, or is there an education piece that needs to be done on the more traditional, maybe one of a better word, venture capitalists that are these kind of like the boys' club in a way? Like what? What are your thoughts? What do you think should be the next steps going forward to make investments more inclusive?
1: Well, I think it's on. There's a little bit on each side, right? I think mm-hmm. that for the founders, founders that don't come from these networks need to make sure that when they kind of get an opportunity to present themselves to the networks, um, they don't sound like quote unquote foreigners, right? So it's yeah. kind of like the language to venture capital, language to you know to to uh, investors. Um, that investors kind of want to use, you know, about customer acquisition costs and lifetime value and blah, blah. A lot of it's jargon, you know, it could be mm. simplified, but the reality is that's the language that they use. And I think that founders need to kind of make sure that they understand the language before and that they present the the investment cases um within that the logic of the language as well. So don't go and pitch, you know, a business that's gonna be a pizzeria to a venture capitalist. Try and understand kind of what the venture capitalist needs to yeah. see for it to be interesting to, to him or to her. Um, and then I think from the venture capitalist point of view, like, yeah, there does need to be more diversity within the venture capital firms. I think in the US, the numbers were like of the top 102 firms in the US, venture capital firms, there were only mm. seven black people uh, in the whole country that had any decision-making authority, right? So, it, you know, kind of that would need to change. And so to yeah. the extent that everyone's getting public money, I think it would be... Um, the responsibility of the government to say you can't really get taxpayer money to then kind of make yourself rich and to make your friends rich you need to make sure that there's some social benefit including yeah. at least including you know groups that right now are not being represented um and then i think like you know there we can use technology to kind of democratize access to mm-hmm. capital and access to um to, to to networks which is kind of like what we're trying to do at the nest because Essentially, what I saw is that over, you know, I think I'd, I'd been working in entrepreneurship either as an entrepreneur or as a business school professor in Madrid or as an on- or at Waira. Um, you know, everything depends on trying to access these like very limited networks. Um, but it's not clear to me why accelerators and incubators use an offline model that's not scalable and that's exclusive when the whole point is to support technologies or, or companies mm-hmm. like scale and grow. You know, it's kind of like, counterintuitive. You have on the one hand, the tools that are meant to kind of prepare entrepreneurs are all offline, but we all want to support online businesses. Well, why don't we put some of the tools online as well? And Mm -hmm. with the idea, idea of the Nest is that by using technology, we can actually kind of say anyone anywhere with a phone should be able to access mentorship, should be able to access capital, and should be able to access the education or the information that they need to be able to put the best case as to why they are going to be the category winner within their particular domain, which is really yeah. what venture capitalists need to see.
0: Brilliant. You mentioned the Nestor, which is kind of your current venture at the moment. Can you, get, can you explain a little bit more about how that idea came about? I know you give a bit of background there and kind of what the focus of this is going to be going forward. And it's just great to know a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Um, So, The Nest is essentially kind of masterclass for founders. Masterclass is basically this, um, you know, influencer education model where Serena Williams will teach you tennis or, you know, Martin Scorsese will teach you directing. Well, Mm. what we said was, well, we can use that model. It's really cool because it makes education a little bit less boring. It's also divided into modules. uh, So, you can kind of just watch what you really need to watch. Um, But let's focus instead of on those sorts of things. Let's focus specifically on entrepreneurship. Mm. um, Because, Part of what really makes Silicon Valley unique, I think, and special is that you have people who've been there and done it, helping people who've been, who want to get there. So someone the other day, I can't remember who it was, but they were like, you know, some guy, I think it must've been from like IBM or some big company, mentored Bill Gates and then Bill Gates mentored Mark Zuckerberg. And then hopefully Mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg will mentor someone else. Now, of course, these are all white guys, um, helping white guys, but that, you know, um, this sort of mentorship and pay it forward culture um, exists. And yeah. so I don't think we have that in Europe to the same extent. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of what I see, you know, or, or saw at Wire, I still see, it, I guess, is that a lot of people out there who are kind of claiming that they're like gurus or advising entrepreneurs, their real claim to fame is that they were somebody's friend. You know what I mean? Or that they work at the right company, (laughs) the McKinsey or Goldman or went to the right schools. But what they don't have is actually the know-how of how to scale a business. So if I wanted to go out there and learn how to play tennis and Serena Williams said to me, Gary, I'll teach you tennis. I'll be like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, please. I'm going to assume that she has insights that are like really going to be like world class and mind blowing. What I wouldn't do is try to learn tennis from someone who watched Serena Williams play it the day before. Because I don't think that watching something and doing it um, are the same. So that's kind of like what we're doing with the nest. It's like, let's limit the people who are going to guide entrepreneurs to people who've actually been in the game who have the scars um, and the war stories and can tell you, don't do this because I thought it was a good idea and I actually realized it was messed up, nearly died, my company nearly died. uh, And here's how we did it instead. And this is what you should take away from that. I think that that form of like entrepreneurial education is a lot more interesting. And then also the kind of things that I saw at Waira as well, which is that like, not everybody, you know, it's hard to kind of get a group of like 10 entrepreneurs in the same room and think that they all need the same things at the same time. Um, If you kind of have more of a Spotify model, yeah, which is like I can create my own playlist, and I can watch it when I want to, where I want to, um, as many times as I want to. Then I feel like that's probably a better, a better um way of teaching people something. And then I guess lastly, which is kind of the insight that um, you know, venture capital works on exclusion. Like even if we kind of democratize it to a certain extent, it's still based on exclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, only you know between 0.1 and 1% of any of all startups are ever going to receive venture capital funding. Right. So that means like 99% of founders are just going to be, you know, not yeah. supportive. Um, and then on top of that, you, you say, okay, well, you have accelerators, but accelerators really are only going to take, you know, maybe 5% because they work, you know, I used to run an accelerator. So it's like this idea that we're taking a cohort of 10 people, but yeah. we're going to reject like 250 to 950, depending on the accelerator. So again, the vast majority of entrepreneurs are just getting rejection after rejection without anyone trying to help them. And that doesn't need to be the case. If you put this stuff all on uh, an app, then anybody can get that information because it's in a video library. And you can kind of make sure that it's edited. um, And again, that people can just use it when they want to, where they want to, how they want to. Uh, So that's kind of the idea of the Nest. Uh, Masterclass of founders, uh, so that all of these, like 95 to 99% of founders that are currently getting rejected and don't know where they need to go to to get access to information, to mentors, and to capital, now they know where to go
0: not and it sounds amazing and I, I love what you said there about actual like founders of people who have been there done that made mistakes maybe didn't get and i think you learn so much too from founders who didn't get there but tried and made loads of mistakes along the way and they're they're like if you're starting out don't do any of this because that's what i did and mm-hmm. yeah and i think a lot of time it's, it's not about nearly the degree or a lot of times that real world experience and it's like from a sports point of view, you can watch a sports match on television. You can watch sports all the time. doesn't mean you can go out in the field and kick a ball and you're going to be Ronaldo. doesn't mean that's the case. You have to. You learn more from actually going out there, doing it yourself, learning, and failing. And I think this is actually taking all those kind of learnings together and actually helping fuel the community and that paying it forward. Because I know for myself, I'm in Dublin. There seems to be that community in Dublin where if you're at a networking event, there's this attitude that you go with the mindset, how you can, how can you give back? more than what can you take because that cause it fosters that giving culture that you're giving people and you're sharing the knowledge and in, in a way then if everyone's going with that uh, mindset you end up getting a lot out of it yourself by teaching people by broadening your network that way rather than what can i get from people how can i kind of get back and i feel like the nest is kind of taking that community and that kind of mindset and kind of putting it online which gives more founders more access to more people and they're not limited by geography so i think it sounds absolutely fantastic And it gives also a broader range of founders and a broader from different backgrounds as well, that same access to other people and learnings, which is, it sounds like a fantastic thing you're doing, Gary, and what you team, And
1: and, and I'm just gonna add though, you know, like I use it too. I mean, that's a weird thing. It's like, you know, I've been in this game now for 15 years, but you know, when I had to come up with the Nest, the idea that I had at the very beginning is very different from the one that I have now, but it was because Mm -hmm. I had access to this network to be able to to support. So, and I think the other thing that we're trying to do as well, you know at, at the beginning i was resistant to it but i just think that you know people forget that there were entrepreneurs before there was you know before there was digital technology you mm-hmm. know what i mean so we also want to say that like the same skills that like every business or every entity um they all have the same kind of needs right doesn't make a difference if i'm like a barbershop, if i'm a pizzeria or if i'm like a non um yeah. You know, I, I need to know certain things. I need to know how to acquire customers, how to make sure the customers keep coming back, how to price the thing effectively, how to market, you know, um, how to get a team. And I think that part of what's happened over the last few years is that people have started to make this huge distinction between startups and SMEs. No, yeah. you know, they're all the same thing. You know, OK, we can say that certain the difference with uh, what we now call startups is that they're faster growing because technology allows you to scale more quickly like Facebook mm-hmm. or whatever. But the basic principles of business should be more or less the same, right? It's just a, a different sort of business. So I think the other thing that we're trying to do with the Nest as well is to make sure that people know that, okay, if you have a barbershop or a barbershop, um, mm-hmm. you should probably think about how that business needs to operate. And the Nest is a place for you as well. It's not just for techies. And that's really important to us
0: yeah but i think too now especially with covid and how so many businesses have had to kind of transform their processes digitally especially especially barbers perfect example now they need online booking that you can't just walk in you have to book online you need to know how to build an online presence grow market that way stand out that and what's user experience like so it's a completely new level and now people are getting so used to cut especially men cutting their own hair and so it's kind of like, how do you now kind of stand out? Not, not, not that that's a good thing. Some people should never cut their own hair. But um, <laughs> but it's, it shows you that our businesses are being more digital and that all businesses in the future will have a degree of technology in them to ensure their survival. So I think it's really interesting to see and that view of what an SME is. An SME isn't like 50 employees. It might be three. And that's, then again, like a startup. So I think there is, it is that kind of distinction. Um, you know... You were talking about um Wyra, and I know in Waira, something you were very committed to in terms of your batch of startups was diversity and it was something that you've always been very committed to. Like in your time in Waira, what were some of like your high, your personal high points or moments that you that really stand out to you kind of looking back at your experience there?
1: And from diversity or just in general? Um
0: both diversity and in general. Just folks but the high moments that you had.
1: Yeah, no, I think that the high moments were always kind of like when a founder that came in Um, that maybe people didn't expect that much from kind of then went out and raised like, I don't know, like $20 million. Like there was Kenny from WeFarm and it came in as kind of like a a spin out from a charity um, or something similar. And eventually, you know, it got funding in the U S in the vicinity of $21 million. And I think they have like millions of users in Africa. They're basically kind of um, a network for African farmers um, or farmers around the world to kind of get information from dumb phones. Um, And so, you would see that you'd be like, who's going to invest in that? But like those mm-hmm. sorts of stories when founders are trying to do interesting things, get support that they need and then become kind of, you know, a big deal in their space. I think that's kind of um, what I really liked about that from the diversity point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I worked really hard. Like when I first got to Spain in 2015, like I did yeah. Spain to the UK in 2014. In 2015, I think we did a study called startup DNA and we did, you know, I was really, I've always been interested in kind of like the demographics and why are yeah. there more, People. And so, yeah, we did a study. It got published in, like, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the Daily Telegraph, C- C- CBS from the US came over to film us. So that was another highlight. Um, and yeah. And then from that, then all of a sudden, we got a lot of people coming to us and saying, hey, would you consider expanding throughout the rest of the UK? So we got associated with this notion of democratizing entrepreneurship because, wholly apart from race and gender, you know, geography and socioeconomic status are also. Yes so it was like 70 plus percent of all funding in the uk goes to startup space in in central london um and so if you live in birmingham or manchester or somewhere else like it's it, you either have to move to london or you need to kind of travel to london frequently but mm-hmm. i was surprised how much how expensive those trains are it was like 200 yeah. pounds you know uh so so i think that that's another thing that kind of stood out from the time there um beyond the kind of metrics of just like how um, many founders raised a lot of money. It was also kind of the stories of founders that might have been left behind in other, you know, other towns and regions, um, all of a sudden having the opportunity, or founders that were trying to do something that people didn't really believe in, like helping African farmers, and all of a sudden raising 21 million. And I guess another personal highlight that a lot of people kind of uh, focus on is when Will I Am came. I got Will I <laughs> Am. Um, And uh, speak at our demo day at at the very first. Um, Yeah, we spoke for like about like an hour on stage and then he stuck around for like about like two or three hours afterwards, um, just taking selfies and talking to people. So he's just like a really down to earth guy. And uh, it helped kind of put wire UK on the map at the beginning because people were like, how the hell did that guy do it? Because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't from the UK and I had been there like less than a year. And then all of a sudden I'm bringing what will I am to a wire demo day. So yeah, that was another kind of highlight.
0: That's brilliant. That, that must have been so cool. Did you get starstruck when you met him at first?
1: Um, You know, it was weird because it, the way it happened is, you know, I was working for O2 and, yeah. you know, CEO of O2, Ronan Dan, Dunn, was actually really cool, actually. Uh, I think he's Irish. Um, He was like, um, yeah, have Gary in the room as well. So I got there. And so it was only like five of us. And then I sent him a message and I was like, hey, I want you to come to my demo day. Um, I don't know if you remember me. I took a picture with him. And then afterwards, I, I got his email. So I sent him a message. Yeah. And I was like, I was the other black guy in the room. And then, he, then all of a sudden, I get this phone call. And I see like some like one, I can't remember the zip code or the area code. And I'm like, hello, who's this? And he's like, Will. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> He's like Will I Am. I was like, oh hey Will, you know. So then I did get a little starstruck in that moment because I was like, <laughs> I believe Will I Am was calling me, and he was like, oh you know you're funny. Like yeah I'll do it I'll do it I'll come to your demo day just like talk to my people about it and that was how I got him. But you know once he got there, you know I tried not to be too starstruck. Um, yeah yeah. Everybody was like taking pictures of me and Will I Am. So I was like oh my god this is like my big moment. Yeah
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kinda of like, you know, I've worked on events myself. I and mean, when you meet anyone who's very high profile and you're trying to be like, keep it cool, keep it cool, keep it cool. You're not like, you're just gonna keep us cool. This is normal, it's fine, everything's cool. Yeah, I'm I, I I'm professional, I'm really and you the inside you're just like, Okay. You're like it's I call it swan, it were on the surface, you're all calm and underneath you're just like the feeler just going 90. But no, that's brilliant. And like, you know, you say they're like obviously like why why red right? there you they seem to be a great focus on diversity and you said like some of the stories are amazing like for some maybe founders some like minority groups like starting out now kind of going into the landscape especially like in this kind of post kind of covid like time what sort of advice would you kind of give to those people kind of starting out
1: yeah i would say um everything is a game Mm -hmm. take the time to understand what the rules of the game are you know so like don't get like too excited or agitated at the beginning, figure out the rules of the game, um, master the rules of the game, and then play it really well. And what does that mean in practical terms? It means um, make sure that you understand what investors are actually looking for if you are trying to raise money. Um, You know, for me, the easiest thing to do would be to go to kind of like Sequoia's website. Sequoia is like probably like the most successful venture capital fund in the world, or at least one of the best. Um, And they will say on their website, like what are the kind of 10 things that any founder would need to be able to explain in order for you to have a chance, you know, to pitch to them. I think that that's a pretty good benchmark for saying, okay, well, if I can answer these questions, I'm already kind of um, well on my way. Um, Two, like, you have to have confidence because, um, and resilience. Because the thing is that like, you know, even for me, like sending out, like, you know, my pitch deck we're raising right now, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot of rejection. And sometimes the rejection is going to be from people that you respect. And they're going to maybe have unkind words to say about your project. Um, You just need to get over it. And you just need to kind of keep on moving forward. Uh, Because, yeah, it's true that, like, you know, raising funding is usually that, like, 90% of the people are going to reject you. And you're just hoping that maybe one or two are willing to give you a shot. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's all you need. You just need the one or the two. You don't need unanimous support, um, you know, to to kind of say how wonderful you are. Um, Three, know that it's going to be a long journey. So, you know, even the kind of overnight success cases, you know, these are usually stories that take, like, 10 years. Oh, 100%. yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, don't, if you're not willing to put in the next 10 years for this, think seriously about whether you should even start because, four, the likelihood of success is very remote. Um, you need to kind of understand that, like, you know, the reason why venture capitalists are focusing on unicorns or call them unicorns is because most companies are just not really. Um, at least the ones that are trying to scale to become like a billion dollar company, um, it's only a very small subset of all startups that will ever attain that status. It's like winning a gold medal. doesn't mean that you shouldn't like, you know, go out running and practice, you know, or or winning a Grand Slam tournament in tennis. Um, Only one person or very few people are going to win. The vast majority are going to really play and really super hard, but they're just not going to get there. Um, So you just have to kind of accept that. Like there's only one gold medal in most industries, maybe two, um, and that's it. And then I think, Um, and number five, I would say network, network, network. Like, um, the older I get, the more I realize that most of the opportunities that I've been given, even for this company, with my Mm -hmm. co-founder, Rasha, it's because I knew people, um, and people liked me. Uh, so it was kind of like, then doors were opened up. Um, it's not like people advertise the majority of positions um it's usually that someone knows you or have heard of you kind of like even this call or, you know this chat that we're having right now yeah and then all of a sudden you know i didn't go out there and say I'm, I'm gonna start looking for you know places no it's just kind of like i guess i have a reputation or whatever um and i network effectively so you know the network is key i would say your network is probably about like 60 percent of your success which i guess then leads so i can't even remember what number we're on right now but to the next one which is seven maybe, Seven, I think. That's right. Seven. Um, Make sure you build a personal brand. Um, And people define your personal brand as what people say about you when you're not in the room. So that means that you shouldn't be like a dick or whatever. You should try and be um, nice because you're going to need people to speak kindly of you or favorably of you when you're not in a room. Um, Mm. Because if they trash you once you you leave, then you're not really going to go that far. So, you know, work on the brand. Um, A lot of this, I think, came from the fact that I wrote an article in Forbes, you know, so kind of... Be in in entrepreneurship. I think it's useful to be a thought leader in the area where you say that you're going to be the gold medal winner. You know, the category winner. So um, don't be afraid to kind of put your thoughts out there. Make sure they're interesting and well thought out. But I think being a thought leader and having a good personal brand again will open up a lot of doors. You know, this past week or the past week, two weeks since I've written the article. You know, I mean, people from soft techs. Uh, SoftBank's uh, Vision Fund have reached out, you know, clients clients have reached out, investors have been like, oh, my God, thank you. You know, um, corporate clients have also said, okay, hey, we need to talk. You know, some some of the ones that have been stalling, you know, kind of like, they had new urgency so you know having that brand and that reputation and putting yourself out there and saying stuff particularly if it pertains to your area of expertise um all of those things are kind of high, are very useful and valuable in terms of um your business don't think of it as something separate or painful no got to put yourself out there you have to be a thought leader you have to network um yeah so th- those would be my tips
0: that's fantastic that's fantastic advice really strong advice and you mentioned there about having like a strong brand and i always find that having a strong brand and knowing who you want to present yourself comes from having a good this sounds very instagram quote having a good sense of self and kind of knowing yourself very well and obviously for people in the lgbt plus community a lot of that starts with knowing when you come out and that journey that you go through or that's sometimes it's a discovery so for yourself Gary, what was your own coming out experience like
1: yeah no it's really interesting because i guess being a black Jamaican in the Bronx. Yeah, uh, you know, I guess it wasn't kind of, it wasn't a, a, a tragic story in any sense. I mean, the weird thing is I think people knew I was gay before I did. I mean, my friend <laughs> told me afterwards, it was like, you know, cause apparently I would go into the Yale dining hall and these really short blue shorts that I like, And I didn't think that much of it. I said, oh my God, I'm gonna show my legs. But you know, like people <laughs> read a little bit differently. And I was like, why are they looking, you know? So. Um, and I think what really happened when I really knew I had to do something was, I guess I was in law school and mm. it was my third year. And um, I, I had a friend, um, Lam, I a friend named David Lam, or have a friend named David Lamb. And so I guess he must have, he came out and I thought it was like so weird to have like a person that would actually be willing to come out. This is like the 1990s and like, mm. New York. Um, you know, HIV, AIDS, blah, blah, blah um technically you know defensive marriage act you know all of that stuff Like, it's like very anti-gay um yep. telling you stay in the closet at all costs um and so david came out and i was like whoa and he's like he's an asian guy so i was like okay that's interesting and then he was like oh, okay uh, um gary like i'm gonna go to this like gay club do you want to come with me and i was like oh well you know i support um all my homosexual brothers and sisters so i will go with you <laughs> that I mean? like totally pretending that it was because like i'm a good little um yeah. and then i went to the club Cause I guess David was like pulling me out of the closet. So I went to the club and before I know it, I had a little tank top. Um, I was going to the club. Um, and then what happened is uh, because I was well known, I guess at Yale, um, mm-hmm. you know, I would start bumping into people. And then all of a sudden people would be calling their friends and being like, and one day someone said to me, Carrie, were you at a gay club yesterday? And I was like, who'd you hear that from? Oh, well such and such. And so I was like, I need to get out of here. Um, and so, I, that was a big part of the reason that eventually I left the U.S. because I was like, I'm not really sure that I wanna, from a professional point of view, yeah. that I can, come, you know, be some lawyer and be like super gay or whatever, like, and I wasn't ready for that. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm gonna come to to Europe, and at that point I had met this like guy on one of my vacations because to me it was like you can have like a lot of fun when you're on vacation, uh, but yeah. once you go back in, then you're completely like asexual slash whatever, uh, and focused on work, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, eventually when I came to Europe. Then I was in London for a year, 2000. Didn't really love that. Um, Because again, I didn't feel like kind of very vibrant gay culture. And then I just went to Spain. Like my friends called it Gay Salona. And we were just like, whoa, this is interesting. And I think it was in Spain that all of a sudden I felt like free to come out. um, And free to, I mean, I was in a relationship like that lasted about seven years. So that kind of provided a little bit of comfort. Because then your family would be like, okay, he's not like a total freak or pervert. Um, You know,
0: he's...
1: he's, um, partnered up with someone who's respectable and I can meet the person's family Uh, so there was that whole element to it and then also just we were like kind of um separated by I don't know how many thousand miles so it was really easy to then feel safe and free to just be myself and so the Barcelona years there were about like 10 years in Barcelona I think that that Mm -hmm. was when I became really comfortable with being gay Um, and then it also gave my parents and everyone else time to kind of get to know the gay Gary but they only had to see me once a year so it was cool
0: yeah. And I think like, it's funny, like you said about like the 10 year, not funny, but like the 10 year kind of journey. In a way, like you, Cause I think for a lot, so for some people they kind of know straight away and it's easy. And for some people it takes more time. It's not like you kind of come out of the closet and there's confetti everywhere. It's sometimes, it's a slow kind of process. Cause you mentioned there about the gay bars. Where remember the first gay bar I went to, I had to sneak out away from a group of friends that I was with and I was in Luxembourg. So I was away again, away from home, that kind of holiday kind of vibe I'm away from home. And I snuck into a gay bar, and then I came back, and I said, "Oh, I accidentally walked in." And I and it, it's it's these sort of strange things you do because you're there working, and you're thinking, "I don't want people to know." Is is that kind of thing? Is that is that kind of journey, and also the journey that your family goes on with you? And then you said some people know, but it is that journey. And I think from a, a founder perspective, I think in terms of a brand, a lot of LGBT people have go on the journey, have a good sense of themselves and how they want to be perceived because they spent. Maybe so much time trying to be something else or not being themselves. So when they get to that stage, they don't want to waste any more time being something that they're not. And in a way, you become as you said, playing the game and knowing what you want people to say. But you you become a little bit more aware of how you present yourself because maybe maybe it was different for you. You spend so much of your time prior to maybe coming out trying to control how the world sees you and how perceives you. Do you, did you find over the years you had to kind of come out a lot at work and have you feel like the attitudes to that, like having to come out of work has changed over the last number of years?
1: Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think like, um, so when I first got to Spain, you know, Mm -hmm. um, because I left uh, the firm here and I moved to to Spain, but it took forever to get the visa or whatever. Um, It took like almost a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was kind of but I would kind of go to some of the work events. And then I remember one time I was there and I, I had never told anyone at the firm that I was gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a Christmas party that they invited me to. And then all of a sudden this gay guy came and he was like, I need to tell you something. They all know about you. They, and this is like before like Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. He's like, they all know about you. And I'm like, how? They said, oh, because you said that you came to, to Spain for your partner. And so I guess they said Americans would say, you know, my, my wife or whatever. Um, <laughs> Something like that. And I was just like, he's like, yeah, they've been having conversations about you, about how they're going to deal with a gay black American. And so it was kind of like, I was like, whoa. You know what I mean? So I felt like really uncomfortable at the party. Yeah. And like you said, then all of a sudden, my next thing is I said to the guy, I was like, where are the gay clubs around here then? You know, I was like, well, we might as well. Like, honestly, I danced a little bit at that party, but then I started to feel like really visible. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I just kind of like needed to kind of go back to the gay club and just like hang out and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, that that's kind of that was the coming out like for, for the firm. I wasn't like, I didn't come out, I was kind of like brought out or, you know, yeah. and, and the thing is like, people were so uncomfortable that they wouldn't ask me, they were just kind of like talking about it. But then the guy who told me this, he hadn't come out either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was hearing all of this stuff. And then he was like, you know, he just came up to me, he said, are you gay? And I was like, yeah, he's like, well, they know, they're talking about it, but don't tell them I'm gay. And I was like, okay, um, cool. Uh, That was, you know, 2001, I guess. I think that nowadays it's like completely, now it's completely different. I mean, I think it's like, you know, everyone, I think the gay rights, you know, movement has done like an amazing job of kind of removing the negative images. And I think also kind of like all the stuff that happened with HIV and then eventually Mm -hmm. the fact that it's, you know, now not such a huge issue as it might have been or that it was, you know, 20 30 years ago yeah um, i think that's been that's been huge as well but like the, the other day i was talking to a partner at McKinsey, and he was like you know what the black community needs to do is to kind of do what the gay community did i mean i'm like in both so i was like well i okay but um <laughs> what, what, what the black community is what the gay community did which is to kind of change the image that people have like all the negative stereotypes and kind of negative images the gay community has done like an amazing masterful job of like going from like the gay pedophile pervert um, to being kind of like the funny best friend to then kind of having you know people talk now about like the gay being the protagonist not not but you know it was it was was useful to be julia roberts best friend and all of those different things because then you were um harmless you know and i feel like the black community you know you're not you're not seen as a black man as harmless you're seen as dangerous so you know probably a similar effort and just like changing the imagery and 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 the thought association um is useful and yeah
0: yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned there, like about like the the stare the stereotype of like what a gay partner or, or homosexual person has been like over the years that you kind of go from as you said like the pervert to like the gay best friend. To like you know now more of the protagonist, um, and it, it's interesting seeing that dial that that really you kind of need to just adopt another stereotype, which and it, itself could and it, that in itself causes problems. But I think it is it's interesting to even see it in that kind of context that in a way it it, it has evolved like that. It's, it's interesting. So do you think that is uh, would you would you agree with that thought that that is kind of the way forward in terms of like um, the black community at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that yeah because i hate to compare but yeah but but it is it is a huge issue i mean i think that the other thing that the kind of gay community did really well was a lot of self-policing you know Mm -hmm. and i feel like probably there's work that each community needs to do like i was on this other podcast the other day for like a kind of like black thing Mm -hmm. um and you know someone said you know do you think the black community needs to regulate itself more and i was like yeah because i i said you know like the gay community like there were leaders you know, there would be disagreements, but there were leaders and there was kind of a strategy. And then anyone that kind of like, you know, got outside of those bounds um, were seen as a threat and then kind of had to be dealt with. You know, and it was the same thing that happened in the Black Lives Matter protests in, um, well, I guess globally, but um in the U.S. in particular, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, once people realized that Trump was going to try and start to say, oh my, and he's still saying it now, the protesters are like these revolutionaries, they're mm-hmm. dangerous, they're destroying property and whatever. Then all of a sudden the the movement kind of police itself and said, okay, we need to just, if you see some crazy person trying to break a window, stop them, you know what I mean? So I do think that there some level of self-policing when you have like kind of common identity traits um, is, is important. And I feel like the gay community was really good at that. Like, first of all, pushing people out of the closet now, like not everyone agreed with it. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with it now, but in retrospect, um, getting people to come out and say, you know, um, your son, your daughter um, is gay. You know, that's useful. Like even Republicans in America now, you know, it's like Dick Cheney, I think his daughter is a lesbian, you know, that changes dramatically yeah. what he thinks about gay people. Cause it's like, okay, well, is she a pervert? Is she sick? She's my daughter. And once you do yeah. that, then all of a sudden you can change hearts and minds. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to kind of um, create different images and then kind of police the community to make sure that the images that we need for our collective advancement are the ones that we're sending out there. Not to say that in people's private lives or whatever, they can't be as freaky as they want to be. Um, but, <laughs> but but you know, we do need to kind of understand that there's a game that's being played um, yep. and that we all in it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. And I think that, that, you know, it is, especially what you said about like um the protest, the Black Lives Matter protest, that that you had to kind of self-policing because once it was kind of identified, uh, there were certain words being used to describe what was happening that then the community said, okay, we need to police this so that can't be used anymore. And it is that kind of piece. And I suppose if you even look at like the LGBT, LGBTQ community, like the first um, Pride was Stonewall back in 1969, which was a riot. And I suppose that that and, and that and completely launched a movement which has given millions of LGBT people across the world the rights that we all have today, especially like in Ireland where this year is the fifth year anniversary of the marriage, the vote to the marriage referendum. So it's just amazing to see that. And even with black, you see all these movements, I know they're very different. We see these movements and how important they are. And in years to come, people will look back at these movements and say, well, what came from this? And what were some of the learnings? And as a group, it is as a community as a whole. The community needs to kind of work together on that because everyone's, regardless what group, minority group you're in, you're working towards the same thing, which is like complete acceptance across society. And I suppose like nowadays, what do you think are like the biggest issues facing LGBT people, especially like in business?
1: Well, I guess on a personal level, like I think that the biggest issue that affects me, like from a business point of view, I don't even think people really care. I mean, mm. like, um, you know, there's a gay, I can't say the word, but like the gay effectively prime minister of of, uh, of Ireland, right? Yeah. Um, t-shirt. You, know, you know, so the first, and, and I guess people didn't, people thought it was strange a few years back when Ireland, when did Ireland legalize kind of gay marriage?
0: 2015.
1: Yeah, so it wasn't even that long ago that you legalized gay marriage, and then all of a sudden you have like a gay, you know, um, yeah, leader. <laughs> and then the same thing in kind of the U.S., you know, when P- Pete Buttigieg, who I was supporting, um, you know, kind of ran, I was like, whoa, he's like gay, and he's like kissing his husband on TV. Uh, but because he seemed so normal, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it became normal to see a gay guy kissing his husband on TV and talking about the first family being whatever. So I think that, yeah, those we've made a lot of progress i think that for me it's more now in the kind of personal space it's more mm-hmm. like you know i do think that it needs to be easier to have kids if you want to have kids all of the the stuff there you know there's just like a lot of stuff like still at least in the u.s and maybe some other markets where you know you can't donate blood because they still think there are these rules in the past where it was like you know every gay person is a suspected hiv patient yeah um you know there's still these rules about kind of you know who can adopt and who can um and it's just so expensive to have kids, like having kids as a gay man is basically only if you're really rich. I think in the U.S. it's like one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. You know, someone told me yesterday that in Canada it's cheaper. It's like 60,000 pounds or 70,000 pounds. Still a lot of money, but not as much as in the U.S. And then there are a whole bunch of jurisdictions where now people are kind of like going back, you know, and it's kind of all of these. They're deep rooted kind of structural you know, assumptions that just need to be weeded out. Um, And then I think on top of it, you know, you're starting to see like some regions kind of really politicians really trying to play cultural warfare um, by, you know, being against gay people. So I I think it's like Hungary, Poland, Russia, you know, and I think that like, you know, it's part of the question is like where you are, where you are. Like I'm living in a kind of very privileged bubble in central London. So my life is Mm -hmm. like pretty great. But I guess for a lot of people in a lot of countries, probably, I don't know, you know, half. Of the countries in the world, more um, it's still pretty shitty to be gay, um, and that it may be illegal, it may still be kind of um, punishable, um, you know, even by death in some places. So I think there's they're almost like two systems or two worlds for gay people. There's like the Western world where it's been like accepted, um, and then there's everywhere else where it might not be quite as accepted. And now they're using this as a way to say, look at how um, you know um, decadent they've become they even support gay people and i think that
0: yeah.
1: that's something that we need to be careful of because you know things can shift so we still need to kind of make sure that we're protecting our rights um don't take anything for granted because even the other day this the judgment in the, in the supreme court you know trump is basically saying oh my god look at these judges that's why i need to be reelected because i'll make sure that we get rid of these crazy judges that are trying to support you know and i don't think he's really against gay rights trump mm-hmm. i don't know I just think he thinks it's politically expedient for a large segment of the population that's kind of still homophobic. And that kind of then tells you that, you know, probably just don't take it for granted. Um, don't take it for granted. There's still a lot of struggle left. Um, for some of us, like me, you know, I live in a bubble, so I don't really have the issues. And just kind of also make sure that you remember that, like, the world is not just like your neighborhood. So even if it's if it's it's a global fight for glo- for equality. It shouldn't just be kind of a fight in you know in Dublin or in central London. So let's kind of keep an eye on the on the global picture and see anywhere where gay people are being persecuted because it yeah. can always turn around. They can always turn around on us.
0: Exactly, and I think that's what I always say, especially about the month of June, the Pride Month. It's a great time to like celebrate what what's been achieved, especially in some parts of the world in terms of LGBT rights and inclusion. But it's also a reminder that what else needs to be done because a lot of, I don't know, I, 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 I sometimes get people asking me, why do LGBT, why do you need a parade for? And I said, because you're you're not only marching to celebrate, you're marching for everyone who in their own countries can't do that. You're marching, you're, you're, it's a reminder that there's so much work left to be done. And while, in a way, like a lot of us are, especially in like Western Europe, are in a bubble of everything's been really good place to the Western world. There's a lot of places that don't have that, that don't have that there. And in a way, you need to kind of, in whatever way it is whether it's putting out content or sharing thought leadership on what happens that inspires people to actually get involved and say what can we do And i think that and if we see now with the black lives matter movement that's happened across the, the past month you see that the world is now actually paying attention and they're actually saying how can we learn more and they're not they're actually and they're actually saying how can we educate ourselves better to have and i think that's important i think that that needs to happen across all movements and i think that kind of movement and looking at what's happening in other countries. So I think that's great. And that's a really, really strong kind of point. Um, You mentioned the Supreme court ruling there. And I thought that in one sense, it's a fantastic move forward that now that they've said that you can't fire someone in the States or let someone go based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. And I know you mentioned there about that, that Trump has come out with statements. Do you think that this ruling is a sign of more good things to come or, As you said, there should we not get complacent?
1: Yeah, I would say never get complacent. And you know, when you were talking, there was, I remember like when I was trying to create like sort of like gay networking group in the uk because i was like Mm -hmm. why can't we have like a gay mafia like i think at the end of the day in america you know gay people support each other and there are some Mm -hmm. really powerful gay people so you know from even kind of like a self-advancement or self-interested point of view like working together is useful but then i remember one of the things i came across was the studies talking about like how you know there still is bullying of kids who are gay so even though like for me it's like okay well my life is great because you know i'm an adult and blah 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 um i think that yeah we have to remember that even in our own jurisdictions as well, our own countries, a lot of young people, it's still hard to be gay. I mean, maybe it's, you know, you're not going to go to jail or anything like that. Um, You can't be beaten up like legally anymore. Um, But, you know, it's still hard. And so we kind of need to also think about like how we're making sure that young people, because the other day I was talking to someone um, and he was like, you know, it's really interesting, the the gay thing. He's like, because, you know, um, my daughter came out to me, uh, you know, and she's like, you know, a kid. Um, So kids are coming out now to parents earlier which i think is cool but yeah. she didn't want her siblings to know you know um so it kind of then kind of reinforces this notion that like it's still hard um it's not it's just because it's legal doesn't mean it's it's it's, it's easy um and you still feel weird and you still feel like a freak and people will still make you feel like a freak um, yeah. in your own family so we need to take that into account but from a kind of like macro level though i would say yeah of course the fact that like winning Supreme Court judgments. I remember one of the things that kind of was really scary to me when I was in law school was the fact that like, you know, in the U.S. the law was that, um, you know, if they, the cops can come into your house and if you're having sex with another man, um, you can go to jail. You know, Mm -hmm. Bowers v. Hardwick, that was the case. Um, And so when I read that case and the reasons, the reasoning that they gave for it, you know, it was kind of just homophobic, like, you know, this has always been wrong. It's always been strange and so the police and the and, and uh, states should have the right to kind of say that it can be le- illegal um yeah. and then that all changed in like about 2004 i think it was or 2006 um but it kind of shows you how far we've come in a very short period of time so it's similar to what happens in the black community as well when people like you know oh my god so we've been discriminated against for like thousands of years gays have been discriminated against i think even longer than blacks right because remember slavery was like about 400 something years i think the the kind of sense about homosexuality I don't know when that came into being well I guess some people said it would be like the 16, 1700s but whatever um but in any case the the sense that this is freaky has been around for a long time um the advancement that we're talking about has been in my life anyway only over the last 10 to 15 years let's yeah. not think that we've won you know so all of those millennia of assumptions and beliefs um you know still exist it's just that we've started to turn the tide but we've only just started to turn the tide so i would say it's you know and, and the same thing about black lives matter right people like did you think you were going to wipe away 400 years of slavery mm-hmm. and uh, 100 plus years of, of segregation uh just because there was a black president i mean that's a really nice symbolic thing but it doesn't undo everything that existed before so i think it's the same thing with the gay community it's like we're, we're, we're making progress yeah. uh, but we're starting
0: and it is, and I think too is like because I, I can look at Ireland for example. Like in nineteen ninety three, that until it was June nineteen ninety three, it was illegal homosexual acts in Ireland were completely illegal. And I was born a month after it was made legal. So it's interesting to even see that. Like, and that's and that's like that's, that's about twenty seven years. That's not a long period of time. And 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 marriage was only in two thousand like five years now. So it's a very small window. And like before that, it was illegal. People had a lot of it was underground. People didn't feel comfortable. And it's and in a way, there are systems kind of built. The society is built for so long that being gay is a, per- a, per- a perverse thing. And in a lot of countries that's still that hardly is still seen. And even you said there about four hundred years of slavery. You know there are societies that are built on these sort of old systems, and it doesn't just change overnight it takes years and years and it means that for future generations coming in what they're learning and how they're learning and what sort of content that they're consuming so there is there's so much more to be done and i think it's a really good point that for anyone listening to this who wants to get involved like look at your local groups look at your local ab- advocacy groups and actually see how you can help whether that's with the lgbt you know um, the black communities see how you can get involved at if the, if hearing these things annoys you or makes you mad or you want to help Go out there, look how you can support in small ways. And sometimes it's doing something as basic as reading, educating yourself on what happened, especially from an LGBT perspective. Like, read about Stonewall, read about what happened, what lives were like for gay men in the US back in the late 60s. So this was not, and that's not a long time ago. I think that's a really important place to start. Um, Gary, I'm going to actually, my last question to you actually is going to be, for anyone who's listening, who is a young person who is Struggling to kind of come to terms with their own sexuality. Maybe it's someone a bit older who's in work who's coming out at a later stage That has the kind of broach Kind of coming out. What advice could you kind of give to these people?
1: Life is short. You gotta do you, right? I think it was after a while that says, you know, um, I can't even remember the quote But it was something, you know, like, um, it's just too tiring to try and be someone else and I kind of um, I'll remember the quote at some point but that's it. You know, like living in the closet and hiding and feeling afraid and not being able to be yourself. Like, that's probably worse. I think like when you come out of the closet, you know, and some people will reject you or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's even less nowadays. But then you just feel free. Like, I mean, I think that, you know, I was in Spain for 10 years or Barcelona for 10 years because I felt free. I felt happy. You know, life, it didn't make life easier. You still have like heartbreaks and someone ghosting you or whatever the case may be. But um, at the same time, like I'm me. And so, and then what i realized is that being me then kind of allows me to get to the next level. allows me yeah. to kind of, you know, conti- because I almost feel like going through all of that then just made me stronger, you know, cause if you can kind of go through this at the end, you're stronger. And I remember one time I was in Spain and this guy, you know um, at my job, you know, he's, from a conservative background he's like you know someone said to me that gay people are like the best employees and he's like because you guys spend so much time thinking about what other people think that you're actually just kind of more empathetic and kind of kind of was like maybe it's stereotypical but no i actually think there's a lot of insight there which is that like we are so often at least you know when i was growing up like thinking about how to navigate situations that in business that becomes almost a superpower like you know so a lot of the things that people right now think are kind of like defects or negatives about you, I think they actually become your superpowers, like just like Spider-Man, you know, whatever. It's like, this is my superpower. Like I can read people. I can be empathetic. Um, people can like me because I know how to make them feel comfortable with me. Um, and I think that that should be the same for most people. So yeah, don't take it. Don't, it, it seems like really bad and kind of like life threatening or whatever, like when you're young, um, but you'll get over it and you'll realize yeah. it wasn't such a big deal. Um, and that kind of the time that you might have suffered actually just made you stronger, um, and that's your superpower.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say about like, because like, I think most LG, LGBTQ people, like, you know, it is tough, and at the time it's hard. And it, when you're in the kind of the dark space, it feels really hard. It, it's, it's tough, you know, how am I going to get through this? But as you said, you do, and it becomes a superpower, and it and it in a sense because and it's not that being gay is a superpower being whatever. It's a, it's what this it's going through those tough moments and actually coming out the other side of it, and how it makes you more empathetic, how it makes you communicate with people better, it gives you a, maybe it gives you a little bit more humanity because you know what it's like to be on the, the the negative side of stuff, and I think also it makes you more aware of other groups who are going through similar stuff. So you can, you might not know exactly the problems that they're facing, but you can say, I know what it's like to be discriminated against. I know what that feels like. So I know the if you need support, this is how we can do it. And you, you understand, uh, you understand the exact problems, but you understand the feeling of what it feels like to be treated not like everybody else, so I think that's important. And for any young person, anyone listening, you, reg- you regret the time that you didn't tell people who you are. You never regret everything that happened since. You don't regret the people that left your life because of it. You regret not doing it sooner because it's easier to deal with people treating you differently if you just own who you are and you learn to accept yourself. And I think anyone listening, if, that, if you take that message, whether you're straight, LGBT, or whoever you are, just own yourself, have that self-acceptance, and that, will, and that will take you so far in life whether it's business or whatever and those lessons you'll learn if you can pass them on to other people that's a really positive thing to do. Um, Gary, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been a fantastic conversation. Um, um, and for people actually listening, last thing, um, how can, if they want to get involved with Nest or learn more about what you're doing, how can they go about and do that?
1: Yeah, just add me in LinkedIn. Um, the Nest kind of, we're, we're right now doing our private beta so we're looking for people to test. You know, part of what we're trying to do is not just like the race thing. It's also kind of, like I said, every um, disadvantage or kind of underrepresented group. So I'm looking out there for kind of gay founders as well. If you guys have any examples of kind of amazing gay founders or gay entrepreneurs, um, let's get them on the Nest platform. and let's, have, make sure, let's make sure that we're telling our all of our stories. So yeah, look me up on LinkedIn. Super easy. Gary Stewart. Um, there's a picture of me and David Beckham. That's my picture on LinkedIn. <laughs> You'll know it's me when you see that picture. Um, and just write me a message and we'll be in touch.
0: Brilliant. Listen, guys, thank you so much for your time. And for people listening, there are more interviews available as part of the Dive Into Pride series. Thank you very much, everyone, and take care and speak soon.